Thank you for listening to Speed Bumps. If you're enjoying this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you subscribed, rated, and reviewed my podcast on whatever platform you're currently listening on. I also wanted to plug my YouTube channel, where I'm posting videos every Friday under the hashtag FinnApprovedFridays. In the videos, I demonstrate how I do everyday tasks and tell you if the items are Finn approved. You can find my YouTube channel by searching one thumb L, that's O-N-E, thumb E-L, or clicking the link in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and on to the show. When you're driving, speed bumps force you to slow down. Some are big, some are small. Regardless of the size, they can really mess up your car if you go over them too fast. In this go, go, go world, society tends to have a negative view of speed bumps. But in my opinion, they don't have to be a bad thing. We all go through speed bumps in life, such as getting married, a spiritual awakening, having children, changing jobs, a trauma, and more. In this podcast, you will hear the various speed bumps that people have encountered and how those experiences have shaped them into the person they are now. Because every story has speed bumps, and that is what makes life interesting. But that has not prevented us from having a very wealthy life um, with community and connection. And I think the other thing I love about myself is that I um, had two parents who not only honored my curiosity and my willingness to be resourceful and to live, you know, as a free little man, even when I was a kid, but they also, especially my father taught me how um, he showed me how, you know, he wasn't a very nice man really in essence, but he was able to be a very nice, charming guy as a business owner. And he really showed me the power of just doing the right thing and, and being a, not only responsible person, but a very friendly person. Um, not, not that it was totally self-serving, but I got to see just the power of like making a person smile. It really, really can brighten your, your own day, but also your life goes a lot better if you're not always out there trying to, you know, divide people, but actually yeah. trying to bring people together and seeing what they, what they see, um, you know, eye to eye on. So those are two things I love about myself. I love those answers. And I feel like your first one is part of the reason that I asked you on here. Um, I know this happened a while ago, but I feel like it really spurred you to where you are now. Um, mm-hmm. My understanding, and I'm hoping you could elaborate, was you were working in a hospital. Um, you were helping out a dying man in the height of when the world was weird. And you took down your mask to comfort him. He hadn't really seen any faces. And they said, no, you're a bad boy and you're fired. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, when I was in my medical training out in California, uh, again, the things I love about myself were also the things that made me uh, made it very hard for me to finish school. I always did really well on the tests and wrote great yeah. papers. And I, I had the academic sort of, you know, accolades in, yeah. and the ability to, to, to score high and get through. But every step of the way, there was somebody or a group of people, maybe the entire sort of village that I was a part of that thought I shouldn't be there. 
And it was, you know, it started in, in birth, right? Like, why are we intervening in every, st- every step of the way? Why are we doing things like this and not doing things more naturally? And that naturally didn't get, didn't gain me enough friends, but because of what my dad had showed me, I was able to charm people. Maybe you can call it social engineering. Maybe it was manipulation, but they allowed me to keep going somehow. Yeah. And I ended up at fellowship in hospice and palliative care, end of life care at one of the top programs in the world at UC San Diego. I mean, it is it is one of the oldest and most renowned fellowship training programs in that specialty. And it was no exception there. I mean, I was constantly rattling the cage. But then I got recruited out to Kentucky and I was working for a hospital system. I had called them out on Medicare fraud. They wanted to fire me. Here we are again in the principal's office. Yep. And eventually legal was like, e- he's he's got some some dirt on us. We better just let him walk away from the contract, which is what <laughs> I wanted. And I went to hospice. So I was actually not in the hospital when I got ultimately okay. got fired, but I was in a, a hospice agency, which is still very conventional medicine. And yeah, that's exactly what happened. An old man dying, 95 years old, has this whole legacy behind him. And now he's going to die alone after not seeing his family, being touched, being loved for 18 months. So the other part that I love about myself, like, let's figure out how to make life better for him. So I sat with him and watched TV. I rubbed his hands and feet, clipped his toenails, made him soup. We talked about his baseball career and his wars and all this other stuff. And he was so dignified. He really, really, really appreciated that time. Because I didn't have much happening in the day after that, you know, uh, I had like a, a, another visit canceled. I just spent as much time as I could with him. Mm-hmm. And of course, he hadn't seen a face. And he asked, you know, can I just see your face? He's like, oh, you got a beard. I used to have a beard. I mean, it was just basic human stuff. And if, sure enough, the next day there's a policy against that. And therefore, I was fired. But really, when when I was thinking about what are the things that I like about myself, I, I asked you to reframe it to grateful because that actually was the moment. That I'm very grateful for. I actually should be sending them, you know, floral bouquets. Thank you for finally firing me because nobody had done it yet. Nobody had really fired me like that. And, you know, I got like a little tiny pittance, like a severance package and whatnot. And it was actually the second job I'd lost um, in two babies and both were on paternity leave, like around the time we had our babies. And, um, and my wife, of course, being worried knew that as resourceful as I am, that I was able to, you know, I was going to figure out a way to make this work. And I did, but I wouldn't have actually done this had somebody not said, you're finally out, get the hell out. We don't want you in the system. Yep. I'm, I'm not employable anyways. I don't belong in the system. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for finally giving me permission to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that boggles my mind, especially, you know, knowing, not even knowing what we know now, because we knew it back then, but for me, if two consenting adults are like, hey, like, can you please do this? Mm-hmm. What does it matter? What some like, and that I guess that was the part that I had such a hard time wrapping my head around. It very much seemed like a power trip for them. And I love that you turned that speed bump that could have just been really devastating in a lot of ways to, yes, I'm finally free. Thank you. Thank goodness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that Yeah, that's how it felt. That's how it felt. Yeah. And it feels so great now. I'm so free. I I have I maybe work 3 to 4 hours per day um out of choice and we don't have a lot of material needs. We don't buy expensive things. Yep. We definitely spend money where we want to spend money on traveling and experiences and getting our girls the best mentorship through, you know, whoever, you know, going to 
classes and things, but um, it was really an opportunity for me to say like to hell with the 401k, the 529b, the whatever, like I don't pay Mm -hmm. as much in taxes and self-employed and we are still, we are just super, super grateful now for the experience to finally do it the way that we did. And, and it was so great that I didn't walk away, that actually somebody had to fire me for me that that was important. Um, So yeah. So thank you for acknowledging that. (laughs) Yeah. Why you say that part was so important for someone to fire you. Why? You know, I, a lot of people say you're so courageous for what you do. I, I wasn't courageous enough to step away. Um, I've got about a half a million dollars in debt, uh, from it, from school and not, not from undergrad. My, that was paid for because my mom worked for the university. I applied to one school, got into one school, university of Pittsburgh that was paid for because she works there. <gasps> right on. <laughs> I got my master's there. Oh, you went to Pitt. Okay, right on. Yeah. Yep. So I lived in Oakland for my whole life. I worked there as a kid. I worked there through college. I wanted to go there for med school, but I wasn't I wasn't their cup of tea, you yep. know, for whatever reason. And um I ended up going to Temple, the other school I applied for for med school and, and went there. And that was actually one of the more expensive medical schools. So I've got all this debt. I have been told it's important to invest in the 401ks and all of this, but I was also paying like 50% of my paychecks to uh, the tax man. And I was working on behalf of CEOs that are making millions of dollars per year. And I didn't like that either. And I was the low man on the totem pole in like white, old white boy, Kentucky. So, you know, I don't think I would have had the courage to do it even though I was feeling my soul was being called to leave, to leave the system. I didn't want to be a part of the system from day one. Like early in med school, I was like, this sucks, but maybe I can do something with that MD in the future. So I just wouldn't have had the courage to do it all. And um, yeah. and that's why I have a lot of compassion for the doctors and nurses and whatnot who are still working in the system, despite even what happened over COVID. I get it. It is really tremendously hard to consider you're not going to have income and you've got a family to feed and maybe you're the breadwinner. In my case, my wife doesn't work. She was training to become a a commercial airline pilot. And then we had kids and she found herself afraid to be up there because small planes crash all the time while people are in training. And she was like, it's not worth it. So I said, don't worry, I will figure it out. Um, But I wouldn't have had the courage to do it had somebody been like, look in the mirror. Do you belong here? And I'm like, no, I don't. Then get lost. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go get lost. Thank you. (laughs) Your your flowers will be in the mail. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And- you know, I get that. Like you have all this debt, you know, and you're told, you know, you have to pay it back and, you know, bad things are going to happen to you if you don't. And the big boogeyman IRS is going to come for you and like all of these things. And school is expensive yeah. and like, it's really expensive. Really expensive. Um, and people, I feel like I would say the vast majority here who go yeah. into science, medicine, things like that. They don't have a nefarious purpose, right? Like they're not going in going, we're going to control birth or we're going to uh, make drugs that purposely help people. Like they go in thinking they want to help people. Yeah. And then you right. get in this system and it's, you're either forced to conform or like you, you're constantly pushing against it. And that's also exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, so this term cognitive dissonance gets thrown around. I think most doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners and everybody else, the respiratory therapists, that even the janitorial stuff, I don't think anybody really likes working in a hospital. It's not a very fun place to be. No. 
it's the food sucks. The water's really crappy. Um, and, and ultimately it's run just like this sort of assembly line and it doesn't feel like a very good place to work, but when you go into medical training and you invest a half a million dollars into yourself, which was lent to me, I didn't have a, I was paying my way all the way through med school, um, taking out extra loans in order to have grass fed beef, right. Or to have farmer, you know, um, free range eggs or whatever. Like I knew that that was important, but I also had no money. So I just took out more and more debt, like a dummy thinking I'll be able to pay this off someday. But what then you learn after you've made this commitment at age 18. Yep. Like I, I didn't even know my head from my ass at age 18, but now yep. I want to go, I'm going to go to med school and be, and go into debt and I'm going to be a doctor and I'm going to be like a Norman Rockwell doctor that cares for the whole family and gets to love them and buys the kids things on their birthdays. Like, I don't know what I thought I was getting into. But that's not what medicine actually is. It is a very, very much a corporatocracy. It's an, it's an, it's an industry in and of itself. Um, and, and despite all of that, most of us end up there and we just find a way to be happy, to be content with it. But that is not in my nature. It was like, for me, it was like, if I'm 85 and I'm the one dying and hopefully there's somebody there not wearing a mask and loving on me, I'm not going to think back and say, wow, I really didn't listen to my heart. That's, that's a good thing to be proud of. And that's not a, that's not a knock on people who do this. Cause I get it at the same time for me, it was just not going to be sufficient. If I don't try, if I don't try to do something that's going to change maternity care, then I'm going to lo- actually look back and I'm going to be like, shit, why didn't I just listen to my heart? And every single day we don't listen to our hearts through cognitive yeah. dissonance. We're, we convince ourselves that whatever we're doing on a nine to five basis, Monday through Friday is the right thing. But, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Paul Check's work, but the Czech Institute, they teach about the four doctors and Dr. Happy is an important part of your well-being. If you're not on a path towards an outcome that you're actually totally content with or would be content with whenever you got there, then that's actually going to be reflected in your health. You end up depressed, anxious, your sleep falls apart, you're, you're stress eating because you don't want to go to work on Monday. This whole like, thank God it's Friday thing is like a part of the corporatocracy. You shouldn't yeah. be desperate for a weekend. Every single day is an opportunity for you to be with your kids and family. And if that job isn't serving you and every single nurse and doctor recognized this sucks and they all just said, we're not working anymore, we would see massive shifts. But every single person on an individual basis feels isolated and siloed as if they're the only ones feeling this way. Yeah. There are some people out there that are happy, but the vast majority are like, this blows, but it's the best we have. And when you're in the training, you're nurtured, you're being nurtured and, um, and and really trained and conditioned to work in the system. That is what all of that education is for. And if you decide, hey, I, I don't like this anymore, they just replace you. You're not that valuable as a no, doctor. No, no, you're, and I've said, I had to learn this lesson. I was indoctrinated, not educated. I was thought right. to think a certain way. And if I stepped outside the box, I was bad. So bingo. I agree with this whole medical system and needing a change. And I've heard you use, this term before that you're instead of tearing it down, you're trying to give a life raft of sorts. Um, but to an extent, medical school has certain knowledge that I, at this current time, I don't know where else you'd get some of that knowledge, right? So if the medical system is a speed bump and we're mm. trying to do something better in your perfect world, what would, I guess, how could people 
skip the whole, I feel like I'm stuck here. And like, they really want to do that family doctor in home concierge type thing. How can they just get there without having to go through all the BS? Is it different medical schools? Is it they have to go through the medical schools, but know that there's different fellowship? Like, what does that look like for you? I still think that going through the German style of medical education is valuable. Like, I'll, I'll be very, very clear. The a bit, what I'm able to do nowadays is actually like revolutionary. Like I can speak from a place of authority. People will listen firstly, because I'm straight. Secondly, because people believe I could be Christian. I'm not, I'm not a practicing Christian, but Hey, he's fits that bill. He's the white straight. Um, pro- they probably assume that I'm Christian mm-hmm. and I have an MD. Like those are some powerful credentials, so to speak. Yeah. And, 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 and like, I'm not, I'm not ta- like saying I've got privilege. I'm using that. No, 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 no. Like when a person who looks like me and, and, and like, you know, I'm, I'm reasonably good looking mm-hmm. with blue eyes. Like people, people want that. They, they want to well, hear. And you look well put together. You can be articulate. You can do all of these yeah. things. Yeah. And Honestly, even just saying, yeah, I'm a doctor, even if it's a doctor of philosophy, that holds more credence than just, yeah, I went, I have my bachelor's. Everyone has their bachelor's. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so there's like, let's say you wanted to get into birth, right? And you mm-hmm. go and you get a doula for certification program. We've got our, my course that I just launched is called the Born Free Method. We mm-hmm. are going to be offering a doula certification program. That's a great thing to do. But it will never, what you learn in a doula certification program will never, ever stack up to a doctor who has held a dying baby and watched the baby die, knowing, man, we could have prevented that with even many of the interventions, right? However, having said all of that, once you gain all of that experience, you still aren't going to stand up to having an MD because- regardless of what we want to say about medical education. And by the way, our German style of medical education is fraught with issues. Like it is not, not great, but because of the reverence we have for, for our sort of typical education programming, Mm -hmm. you know, you go to four years of college, you have to score really high. You can take a big test. If you score high enough, high enough on that, you get a privileged position at a med school. You get do well enough in that you get into residency. It is the cream rising to the crop. And in a system, in a society that values that, that sort of like factory line style of education, we are the best at that. And as long as we value that, I'm going to have a, a, a platform. Now, That's fair. my MD compared to other MDs, it's the same. We used to say P equals MD, pass equals MD. You can have an MD yeah. going the extra steps with curiosity and, be, and being very, very well invested in listening to women. If you're there to care for women, why don't you listen more to women? That then allows you to really articulate what you're doing. My whole point in this is that just going to get the certification is not enough. If you wanted to go and get a certification, go and get your MD, and then you can actually step away and do whatever it is that you feel compelled to do with all of your your God-given gifts, so to speak, as well as maybe the diplomas and whatnot. And I have a stack of them. They're in like a closet somewhere. But that is not what I, how I identify. I don't identify as a person with these accolades. Those accolades were a bridge to get me to a place where people can't just push me out the door and say, you're not a doctor. I am a doctor and I'm, I'm dual board certified. So that actually gives me credentials above a lot of other doctors. Right. 
and I've attended thousands of births, including many at home. So that gives me a little extra. So going back to your, the, the sort of root of your question, I don't think it's a bad idea to get into this system. But if you lose yourself and you start to identify with a cog in the machine, that's where I think we actually run into problems because there's a lot of very, very thoughtful doctors and many of them have left the system like me because they're like, to hell with this. This is just not going to work. Unfortunately, that's the minority. Definitely the the, the tiny yeah. minority. Yeah, that, I don't know. Like, I, I think about that sometimes, like, because there's these midwives, right? These, uh, if, if yeah. you think about um, even 200 years ago, right? You typically went to the elder in the community, typically a woman, she had all this experience, you didn't necessarily go to school, but she mm. had all this, this experience. And that is typically who attended births. You know, obviously the timelines, I know you did a great episode on the history of midwifery and things like that. Uh, but that's really interesting. I hadn't considered the thought of stay in the system, maybe tweak some of the classes a little bit, but then stepping out of it. And do you think that you'd have to go in with the mindset knowing you plan to step out? <laughs> I think that's a, a classic example of like hindsight being 2020, right? Okay. You, you, you know, my wife, when she embarked on her pilot training, one of her big fears was, what if I end up not liking it the way that you do? And like, she mm -hmm. had to live through resident. We, we met when we were 15, um, another another thing about my life that I'm super grateful for without her I wouldn't have been able to do any of this because she said hey it happened you're we I know that you you're going to figure it out I've got you and we move on together um but I digress when she was going through that she was like what if I don't like it and that was actually holding her back from really diving into the work I think that if I were to change the system was that your original question how would I change it that was part of it. I asked like four yeah. things. I'm sorry. Yeah. I was like no, trying okay. to articulate it and ask a question. And that was. If let me, let me tell you what I would do about education period. Yeah. I think for the first up to maybe seven to 10 years of a kid's life, there should be absolutely no tests. Zero. We should actually be uh, really emphasizing creativity and, and self-expression and kind of working through complicated emotions. We should not be forcing kids to memorize things in second grade to regurgitate them on a test. Secondly, I would eliminate homework altogether. Um, part of the reason that sociopaths like me go into medicine is because we've only been valued for how we score in our exams. <laughs> So I was really good at that. So why wouldn't I get more exams? And then you find at the end of the rainbow that the rug is pulled out and there's no more exams. Now you're on your own. Like, where's the, how can I show value here? Right. So people start getting more school and they go and do, they want to be the head of ACOG and represent this board over here and all of that. Like they just need to be recognized. So I would eliminate that standardized tests are out and we go back actually to an apprenticeship model. Board of doctors. You know, I was, I was getting my hair cut the other day and my barber was pissed because the barber board has eliminated apprenticeship uh, for barbering in the state of Kentucky. What that means is you have to go and pay to go to school for three years, years or something. You're not, you're not getting paid. You're, you're just practicing on people who get like cheap haircuts and you're paying quite a bit of money before you even step into a barbershop to make some money, you know, as a barber. It used to be like my dad was an HVAC guy. He fixed air conditioners mm -hmm. and heater in, in, in heating and 
the way that it used to work is you just met somebody in plumbing and you would apprentice for as long as you needed to in order to understand building code and to do the jobs on your own. And then you would branch off and form your own company. That used to be you know, the way that medicine was done as well. But then when we adopted German style medical education, this is back in the early 20th century, there was a report, the Flexner report, 1910, I believe is when it was published. It sounds, sounds like you're familiar. That effectively uh, eliminated all medical education if it didn't conform to this German style of medical education. That includes homeopathy, chiropractics, osteopathics, uh, Chinese medicine, herbalism, whatever. And it was financed by Rockefeller and Carnegie and the Mellons, the rich people of the world, the richest people that probably have ever lived in, in today's dollars. And they invested in this four years of school with, or of college, four years of, of medical school and then, and then residency for specialization. That was the system they invested in. When we, if, if we were to, to go Back in time before that, and you look at traditional midwifery, that was the sort of a classic example of the apprenticeship model. You just go to births and go to births and go to births and get the experience and ask questions and go and read about it later. And you do this thing. And when you're ready, you hang up your shingle. If we had that model, a lot fewer um, boneheads would be you know, running our medical establishment um, although we, we now have business people that are running it, but even the doctors and whatnot who actually have quite more, quite a bit more power if they all linked arms and stood in this together, we would, um, we would have less people getting into this for the accolades and more people getting in realizing that your job as a physician, it used to be revered because you're sitting with people at their worst times. You're holding their hand and walking through hell and not even wincing at the flames while they're like trembling with fear. That is what a doctor could be. And that's how I like to see myself in birth and death and every and, and everything in between. Um, but we don't have that system. If we did, if we had an apprenticeship model, I think we would actually have not only better doctors, we would have happier doctors. I think we'd have a, um, the reverence would maybe come back because people would really, really be invested in the process as opposed to the outcome, which is that P equals MD thing. As long as you pass, you get your MD. Um, this is, it should be a calling. I think it should be something that you feel compelled to do it, even though you may not make any money. It certainly was a calling for me. Yeah. And I feel like also around that same time and not just in the medical industry, there became all these regulations and rules and licenses, and you have to prove that you can do this in order for us to say that you can do this. And you have to pay a fee to say that you're a plumber because you need to hold a plumber's right. license. And you're right. It, it took away in many uh, occupations the ability of an apprenticeship. Um, and even trade schools now are a dying breed because that's quote unquote hard work, right? Uh, and so now we're paid. Well, now we pay because we're trained to believe that the only way to get an education is to have someone stand at a front of a room and tell us. But you said something that I thought was really interesting of a doctor's ideally supposed to be able to sit with you when you're going through your hardest thing, when you're going through hell and be like, yeah, like this sucks. I'm going to hold your hand. Like we got this. And I feel like most doctors today could not be a doctor under your uh, perfect world model because so many people are uncomfortable with the thought of watching someone else suffer. Mm. 
because they'd want to automatically give pain meds. They'd want to, yeah. um, if you're a little bit depressed, well, here, let me give you a pill here. Let me, um, what can I do to make this go away to make you happy? Yeah. What can I do to push away this problem? And it's not just doctors who have that. I feel like that's a whole society mentality oh, of yeah. oh, we're yeah. just, we, we're not going to deal with the suffering. We're just going to push it away. We're going to throw money at it. We're going to throw a pill at it and everything will be fine. Absolutely. That is actually, I think, the biggest issue with uh, maternity care. I know that you know you may have kids someday and you've probably been thoughtful about this, but we're so highly interventive even for even in the preconception phase, right? We want to do, we get people, so many people into assisted reproductive technologies, hijacking your hormones, all of that stuff. And I think part of that, even that problem there is that we don't like the idea that this person is in pain emotionally. They're frustrated. They're angry. They're, 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 they're mad. They're like mad that everybody else is having kids. So, Hey, let's just do IVF. It's so easy. You could say the same for induction of labor. You could say the same for um, for C-sections, right? I'll share a very brief story. When I was mm-hmm. a resident, um, you may have heard me tell this story before, but I, I think it bears repeating because it is there's some medicine in this. I was uh, at the end of my training at, at Kaiser in Los Angeles and a, a baby was born preterm. The baby wasn't breathing spontaneously. So they rushed rushed to the baby to the operating room to figure out what's going on. We can't get a breathing tube in. And they brought the pediatric surgeons up like emergency. We need everybody here, all hands on deck. And they found that the baby was missing a trachea, no trachea. So similar to your thumb, it -hmm. was just not that part developed. Yep. Nothing anybody could have done. There's nobody to blame. We all like to blame people. Yep. But this baby died in her arms because there was nothing we could do. Mm -hmm. And as this baby is taking its final breaths and passes away, people are arranging instruments, putting blankets on her, checking her blood pressure, clicking on the computers, documenting, going in and out, in and out, in and out. This door is swinging and banging and Eventually, she just said, are we allowed to curse on your podcast? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. She was like, can you guys just leave us the fuck alone in in a much more sh- forceful way? Yeah. And you can hear a pin drop. Everybody filed out. I think everybody realized just what was going on here. But the reason we were all so busy, and it wasn't me. I, I, I'm not going to say I was busy. I was watching. I was observing and holding space as best as I could and noticing all the noise. And I was like, gosh. Like this little baby is dying. This woman just gave birth to a baby and is now saying goodbye to her baby. I was just, I was just taking it all in. Yeah. And she was crying and her partner was there with his hand on her shoulder. And this little baby girl passed away right in front of us. Like what an incredible privilege for us to be allowed to be there. Yeah. But the, but the pain, seeing a person, knowing that they're in pain is such an incredibly challenging thing for us. Yeah. Um, even in partnerships, my wife comes to me with a problem and I want to jump and solve her issue. Like oh. this is through and through, right? Yep. Um, I had a, a patient who was dying of, I believe it was cervical cancer or something, young woman. Um, she was Thai, she was Buddhist. And her nurse called me down while I was in fellowship in San Diego and said, I I, I don't know what to do. This, this patient in room whatever is, mm-hmm. she's in pain but her family won't like let me give her pain medicine. What what can I do? And I was like, well, let me talk to them. And they said, doc, you can't, that's going to, that, that's going to distract her from her suffering. And that suffering is a big part of the traditional. Uh, uh, it's not even the tradition of dying in Buddhism. Like Buddhism really, really honors suffering. There's something to be learned there. It's a part of your Dharma. Mm-hmm. And if I were to give her morphine, she would certainly stop grimacing, 
but we're going to actually perhaps impart on her other types of suffering, which may come in the afterlife or in her next, you know, through karma, mm-hmm. through her next incarnation. Um, so anyways, yeah, our inability to sit with pain and suffering has, has really, really um, demonstrably twisted the way that doctors care for their patients. Sometimes it's a, we just need to just sit in their pain with them, not withholding medicines that we know will be helpful, but just acknowledging that like sometimes pain hurt or, or life hurts. Sometimes birth goes wrong. Sometimes life is just crap. Yeah. Can, can we be there in that crap with them? That's the task. You said a word that I'd really like you to elaborate on. You said it was a privilege to watch her mm-hmm. die. And I feel like some people who hear that would be like, what the fuck is this guy saying? You, oh, yeah. you just described watch, watching a baby die and you use the word privilege. like, And I feel like for some listeners, they'd have a really hard time wrapping their head around that. Could you elaborate why you chose to use that word? Yeah, I think that when we die, I actually think reframing death is really important. I think there's a there's a great privilege to ultimately having to leave this body and go onto the next phase. But what I the reason I use privilege in that scenario is you are being permitted. You're giving you're you're giving being given a permission slip to be a part of this person's experience that is going to traumatize them and they're going to have to work through for decades. Honor that permission slip. This is not like a checklist. There is no checklist for how to care for a woman who's holding her dying baby after just giving given birth. Yeah. At, after you know giving birth at thirty two weeks or so. So it's not so much like wow, what a great opportunity. That's not why I'm using privilege. But when we're given, you know, um, when somebody opens a door for us to come into their space, they want to be vulnerable with us. It could be something as simple as I failed that test or whatever else. We don't come to them with a solution. There's a great privilege to that person being vulnerable with you. And we need to honor that. I, I, you know, my mother, when I, my wife and I have been together since we were 15 and we broke up, we separated, um, uh, sometime in college, probably a couple of times, but there was the time where it was like, we're done. We're not going to be together anymore. And I, was crying in the car. We were driving home from work. I was like the male boy at the hospital, you know, and um, we were, I was crying and I was just so just down. And the next thing out of her mouth was, do you think Emily needs new pants? It's my sister. And I learned from that. And I've actually had to work through it with my mother now. And we're, we're fine now, but I had to work through that. Oh, the first time that your tough little man was truly vulnerable with you, you weren't even really connecting with that pain. I was in a lot of pain and it may have mm-hmm. seemed trivial to her, mm-hmm. but I, it told me not to be vulnerable with people. Yeah. And I had to work through that later in life. This person is going to carry the outcome of that experience of, of a baby, her baby dying in her arms that day for the rest of her life. There is no moving on from that. You don't heal from grief. Grief becomes a part of you. That's another yes. big one in, in working with the dead or with the dying, I should say. So she's going to be grieving this for the rest of her life. What could we possibly do to honor this experience? Clicking on keyboards, is that the way you we should do it? Or, or organizing the instruments? Or is there some sort of checklist that we need to get through? Is that the way we honor a, a woman going through in, in her partner, going through maybe the most traumatic thing that anybody could ever go through? I'm not certain that that's the best way for us to be there. I think yeah. being present, spending 60 seconds to just pause, hold your breath, Stop moving and just be with her 
We are so challenged by being present nowadays. So if you're given the, the door is open, I want to be vulnerable with you. That is a privilege. You don't, aren't entitled to be there just because you have a name badge. She allowed you to be there and that's what you did with your time. Yeah. And I feel like exact because they basically abused that privilege is why she was like, get the fuck out. Get the fuck out. Leave us the fuck alone. Yeah. It's, it may have made it worse for her. I mean, yeah. in the long run, she might still be talking about how like those assholes at that hospital yeah. can't believe that that's what they were doing. Yeah. But we can't even sit with ourselves nowadays, right? If we start to get uncomfortable or bored, you know, mm-hmm. we, we pick up our phones and let's scroll, let's scroll, let's, yep. we can't even sit with our own uncomfortable emotions. Um, that's right. And, you know, you hear this, uh, these statistics thrown around of, you know, TikTok has reduced our attention span to the length of a short reel or video or whatever they call it on TikTok. (laughs) Yeah, like force. I mean, basically a goldfish has a longer attention span than us now. Um, And I'm just like, the ramifications of that on society are, the ripple effects are going to create so many speed bumps unnecessary speed bumps for people i feel like Mm. Mm. because if we just could be present in so many ways regardless of what that way is whether it's someone hurting or even being someone happy right sometimes you tell someone a happy story and they feel like they have to one-up you if we could just be present how many speed bumps could we prevent yeah i don't I don't claim to know all the answers or, you know, oftentimes I get on here and I'm talking with people and I just, the thought comes to me and I just kind of explore it. Um, sometimes I ramble a little bit, but. No, it's beautiful. It's, this is what, you know, a world in a world that's craving authenticity, really starting to, to point out the very obvious things that even you and I are probably guilty of. You get, you oh, catch yeah. scrolling and you're like, what the hell am I doing? Like, let me go play with my daughter. I mean, it's, yeah. it sounds so trivial, but that you, you magnify that to the entire way that our society even cares for people at the end of life. And it's like, what the hell are we doing here? Like, is there like, is everybody happy with the way birth is going in hospitals? No, then why don't we stop that? it. <laughs> yeah. But if we just get so caught in the routine and our attention spans, you know, from the standpoint of like, you know, let's look at the data. Is this induction thing we're doing or the C-sections, is this actually helping our society? You know, I just, I just listened to this podcast with, um, her name's Shauna, Shauna Swan, I think is her name. And okay. she's talking about plasticizers and the impacts on fertility. Like fertility rates are in a rapid, like a precipitous decline over the past yeah. couple of decades, specifically sperm count. And these plasticizing agents um, are doing so much harm and they are in everything. Like every one of those sippy cups that is flexible plasticizers. Um, these are neuroendocrine disrupting um, um, molecules. And so- Despite this, this woman is like, she was on Joe Rogan's podcast and she was talking about how important this was. And he's like, why aren't people talking about this? And it's because nobody gives a shit like, like about, uh, it's not that they don't give a shit. It's that they don't take the time to really sit and be present with some of this news or to sit and be present with their kids or with their partners. Like we are so easily distracted 
and I am as well. It's something I'm I'm actively working on, but you have to be willing to accept that, man, like if this isn't the best we can do, how can I be, you know, in service to humanity and maybe to our species if sperm counts are dropping that quickly? Yeah. Um, you know, I, that was a bit of a tangent, but I hope. No, it, so listen, <laughs> tangents happen all the time here and they're organic and I love them and they're, they're totally acceptable. I love them. They're some of the best uh, <laughs> conversations I've had with people is the random tangents. But yeah, I, but to your point about plastics, it's just, um, they're everywhere. They're in not even just the stuff that kids uses, but us and heck, even our phone cases, right? Yeah. And what are the potential ramifications? Well, the sper- sperm count is down. So then kids aren't being born. So. Yeah. yeah, I just so many things make me wonder. But Nathan, I wanted to thank you for coming on. Um, I will make sure everything is linked in the show notes. But in case someone they want to look you up right now or they can't yeah. click, uh, can you plug you the born free method, your website, all the things, please? Yeah. So um, for those who are really, really contemplating having kids in the future, I've got two two programs that I really, uh, I think are the most impactful, at least from my point of view, um, on, on these fertility challenges that, you know, up to maybe 20% of couples now are reporting. Um, they end up in the IVF clinic. They're spending 15 K on IVF and there's no guarantee that that's going to work because we've got poor sperm, poor eggs. We've got, we're rife with toxins. We're just our adrenals and our endocrine systems off our guts off. So I wanted to take a totally different approach without hormone therapies, and that's my PRP fertility program, which can be found at belovedholistics.com. I also work one-on-one with people. I go to home births. You can find all of that there. But the, the born-free method is also helpful preconception. It helps you to dial in your health on the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual levels. And um, and that will not only help you with getting pregnant, it'll also help you uh, avoid pregnancy complications and really to be able to honor your autonomy in who attends your birth, where you have your baby, avoiding all of those complications, having a faster postpartum recovery. This is the most comprehensive pregnancy and postpartum course around. So in addition to an eight-week sort of drip course, which is just 90-plus video modules, you get lifetime access, you get all future updates are free you know, at, at no additional cost, and you get 12 months of weekly calls with me and Sarah Rosser, who's one of the farm midwives down in Tennessee. So that can be found at bornfreemethod.com. And otherwise, you mentioned my podcast. Thank you for that. The Holistic yeah. OBGYN podcast. We have conversations very similar to this. And um, and then, of course, we get into some of the, the nooks and crannies of fertility and pregnancy and menopause and all of that. Um, COVID, haven't shied away from that yet. <laughs> has, has served me well to just address things that I, you know, the elephants in the room. But yeah, um, you can find me there. And then on all the socials, it's Nathan Riley, OBGYN. Well, thank you again, Nathan. And like I said, everyone, all of that will be in the show notes. And I hope y'all have a wonderful, wonderful day. Baby, avoiding all of those complications, having a faster postpartum recovery. This is the most comprehensive pregnancy and postpartum course around. So in addition to an eight-week sort of drip course, which is just 90-plus video modules, you get lifetime access. You get all future updates are free you know, at, at no additional cost. And you get 12 months of weekly calls with me and Sarah Rosser who's one of the farm midwives down in Tennessee. So that can be found at bornfreemethod.com. And otherwise, you mentioned my podcast. Thank you for that. The Holistic yeah. OBGYN podcast. We have conversations very similar to this. And um, 
And then of course we get into some of the, the nooks and crannies of fertility and pregnancy and menopause and all of that. Um, COVID haven't shied away from that yet <laughs> has, has served me well to just address things that I, you know, the elephants in the room, but yeah. Um, you can find me there. And then on all the socials, it's Nathan Riley, OBGYN. Well, thank you again, Nathan. And like I said, everyone, all of that will be in the show notes. And I hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful day. <laughs>